My name is Heidi and I love stories. Funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. After two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready, this is Messy Scripture. Keep in mind that in this area of Israel's history, there were no kings, there were only judges. And the last two stories in the book of Judges, well, the last two big stories in the book of Judges, will make it abundantly clear that while the people were doing what was right in their own eyes, they were absolutely not doing anything that was right, or doing anything right. They were just making mistake after mistake after mistake. Up in Ephraim, there was a guy named Micah, and he stole about 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother, who then cursed the silver and cursed whoever took it. However, after he admitted to being the one who took it, she blessed him and dedicated the entirety to the Lord. Now, that's great. Fantastic. Dedicating silver to the Lord. And then she completely undid how great that was by sending 200 pieces of silver to a silversmith who cast it into an idol. And she and her family, Micah especially, were worshipping this idol. When a Levite came through, you remember the Levites, they were supposed to be God's servants. They didn't have an inheritance in the land. Their inheritance was just God. Levi doesn't have an area that they get to be. Their whole thing is that they are sustained by God and sustained by the people. Anyway, a Levite comes through and Micah's like, hey, you should be my family priest. And the Levite's like, cool, I'll be the family priest. And Micah's like, ooh, now God will definitely bless me and my idol because I have a personal priest. This should not sound okay, but it does to him. It sounds okay to Micah. That's his plan. That's what we've got. At the same time, the tribe of Dan didn't have an inheritance either. Now, Dan wasn't supposed to not have an inheritance like Levi, who was never going to be a portioned one. It's just that, as you might remember, Joshua did not take the entire area that like Israel was going to take. God was like, you're going to have this to this, but I'm not going to help you take all of it. Instead, I'm going to see if you guys like step up and do your jobs. So Dan was looking for an area to inherit. The people of Dan sent five spies out to see the land and to see if there was anywhere that they could settle and on their way they stopped at Micah's house and they recognized the voice of the Levite because I guess they'd known him already. The Levite had gone through Judah before which is definitely more accessible than the area of Ephraim, the hill country. You know, it's hill country. Anyway, the five men ask the Levite whether or not their plan will succeed and he's like, go do your thing. It's going to work out great for you. The Lord is with you. Be on your way. So they go on their way and they come to the town, well, city of Laish and they find that The people are peaceful. There's nothing going on. They're unsuspecting. They live like the Sidonians, just super chill, cool. And they're like, let's take Laish. So they head back, the five spies, and go get some soldiers from Dan. 600 soldiers from Dan leave where they are and go to the hill country of Ephraim on their way to Laish, the same path that the spies had taken. And as they pass through, the five guys are like, by the way, don't know if you knew this, but right over there, there is a god, an ephod, some carved images, a metal image, and a Levite. What are we going to do about it? And they're like, hmm, I've got an idea. So the 600 men make a proposal to the Levite that he leave Micah and his family and become the Levite dedicated to the service of the tribe of Dan. Like, would you rather be the priest for one person and his family or the priest for a whole tribe? And the Levite's like, whole tribe, obviously. So the priest heads on out of there with the ephod, the household gods, the carved image, the metal image, the whole nine yards. He goes with the tribe of Dan. Micah chases them down, but realizes, eh, nothing I can do about it. Because, you know, there's 600 of the men of Dan and there's him and his people. And Dan's like, hey, we gave the priest an offer he couldn't refuse. And the priest is like, shrug. 
just as Micah couldn't do anything against the 600 men of Dan, neither could Laish. They attacked the city, totally unsuspecting, and killed everyone, burned it to the ground, and rebuilt it. The city was renamed Dan after their ancestor Dan, after the name of the tribe Dan. They made this area their inheritance by completely slaughtering an innocent city. And the Book of Judges records it very strongly as this city used to be Laish. These people were unsuspecting and innocent, and Dan was out of line. But everyone's doing what they want, right? Great. Just a small massacre. That's... Yeah, it's a hot mess. And the Levite is standing there, nodding his approval, pretending, or really perhaps even thinking that he's the priest of God, when in fact, he's a priest before carved images, things with no power. This isn't just any priest. This particular priest is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. Whether this means son as in direct son or great-grandson, it's kind of unclear sometimes with descendancy. Someone in Moses' direct line, a Levite, has now so lost the plot that he's serving as a priest before a carved image instead of as a priest of God. The second story that wraps up the book of Judges is also involving a Levite. This particular Levite had a concubine who cheated on him and left him and went back to her father's house for four months. Now, this particular Levite did try to win his concubine back. It's also unclear from the text if they were somehow legally bound together, because it does call him her husband. Anyway, the Levite goes and finds her at her father's house. The father-in-law is very happy to see his son-in-law, and they hang out together for about three days. The father continuously trying to press him to stay. However, he won't have it, and he's ready to go. After like three days. That's how in-laws go, right? Okay, great. Things have not changed that much. When they finally did leave, it was kind of later in the day and the father-in-law's like, stay one more night, leave tomorrow, just don't, you know, leave in the middle of the day. But this guy's like, absolutely not. So him and his servant and his concubine head on their way. They almost stop at Jebus, which is eventually changed to Jerusalem. It's named for the Jebusites. Anyway, the servant's like, we should stay there. And the Levite's like, no, we're not going to stay in a foreigner's town held by foreigners who worship foreign gods. Let's go on and find somewhere safer. So they go on to find somewhere safer. The particular place that he was aiming for was either Gibeah or Ramah, which are both, you know, held by Israelites, specifically Benjamin in the case of Gibeah, which is where they end up staying. The Levite, the servant, and the concubine go to stay in the square. And they are found by an older man who's on his way home from working in the fields. And he's like, Whatever you do, don't stay in the square. I will feed you. I will take care of you. It will be great. Just please don't stay in the city square. This might sound vaguely familiar, like a story we've told before. I wish that I could say this story had a happy ending. The three of them go to the older man's house. And as they're eating and drinking and, and, you know, just hanging out, chilling, clean feet, happy days. But the men of Gibeah show up and bang on the door and are like, send out your guests so that we can have sex with them. And the man is like, don't do this. He's a guest of mine. Here, I have a virgin daughter and he has a concubine. We'll send them out. And they use the word violate, like as in violate them, do whatever you want to them, but don't do that to him. He's a guest. In case you're wondering, yeah, gender relations were in a real bad spot at this point, but it, it gets worse. The men of Gibeah are like, no, we don't want the girls. We want to rape the guy. And finally, the Levite just grabs his concubine and shoves her out the door and slams it behind her. And the men gang rape her all night and beat her and harm her 
until almost sunrise. They finally let her go, and she collapses on the doorstep of the old man's house. When daylight comes and they open the door, she's still lying there, her hands on the threshold. The Levite tells her to get up and get going, but she's died. She was raped to death by the men of Gibeah. The Levite is horrified at what's happened, and he cuts her body into twelve pieces and sends one piece to every tribe in Israel to make a count. Israel, the country, all twelve tribes, are properly horrified, because nothing like this has ever happened since they left Egypt, and they meet together. The remaining tribes demand that Benjamin punish the men of Gibeah for what they've done, but Benjamin refuses. Benjamin, the tribe, is standing by this city that did this horrible thing. Keep in mind something that sounds remarkably like Sodom and Gomorrah, a place that no longer exists because God smited it. But no, Benjamin decides that they're going to have a civil war against all the other tribes. And Benjamin fortifies itself, and the other tribes actually turn to God for once, and God's like, Judah, lead the charge. The first battle, Benjamin won. Severely. They killed 22,000 Israelites. However, Israel didn't lose heart. After all, Benjamin was really in the wrong here. Like, all the way in the wrong here. And they were not about to let it stand. They went up against Benjamin again. And this time, Benjamin killed 18,000 of the people of Israel. And now the people of Israel are real concerned. They go to Bethel, which is the place that is holy to God. You might remember Bethel as the place that Jacob had his dream. You know, Israel of Jacob's ladder going up into heaven and angels coming down. This is the heart of God's promise to Israel, or at least one of the places that that you would go if you, you wanted to know what God really wanted. And the people go to Bethel and weep and ask God if he really does want them to go out against Benjamin. They make plenty of burnt offerings and sacrifices and are worshiping before the Ark of the Covenant, the one place that actually is appropriate to worship. And at this point, by the way, fun side note, Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, is still the high priest at this point. So this is like not that far into Israel being its own place. And this is where things are. Things have completely deteriorated. But God tells them to go up once more against Benjamin. And that tomorrow, when they go again, God will hand them over. This time, they have a different plan. When Benjamin begins to fight them, they retreat. About 30 men die in this battle, and Benjamin's like, oh, we're going to rout them. But what they didn't know is that 10,000 of Israel's best fighters were going to ambush Gibeah. So Israel lets quite a bit of ground go because they're trusting the ambush to work, and Benjamin is pursuing the retreat. Like, this is what you do. Well, the ambush worked. Gibeah was burned to the ground, and Benjamin realized that they were absolutely surrounded. Disaster fell before them, and 25,000 Benjaminites died that day, and all of them were men who drew the sword. So not a single woman or child is accounted in this number, just soldiers. Benjamin had made their stand in favor of Gibeah, and God had made his stand not in favor of Benjamin. Once the men of Israel had burned several towns to the ground and really done some serious damage to Benjamin, they realized that they didn't want to cut off an entire tribe of Israel. This wasn't the point. The point was to punish a very specific incident, and now Benjamin was going to be cut off entirely. Not just because they had, you know, burned them pretty severely, but also because the men of Israel had made a pledge that they would not give any of their daughters in marriage to Benjaminites. The context of this makes sense, you know because of what Benjamin had done to get attacked. But Israel still wanted to make peace with them, and they had compassion on them because Benjamin was going to die off, like, for real. Well, Benjamin made peace, and 
the men of Israel realized that nobody from a particular area, Jabesh Gilead, had actually showed up to the whole what are we going to do situation because of the concubine. You know, when they got the message in blood. So they decide to completely raise Jabesh Gilead. The plan is to kill every man and child and woman who had laid with a man, so anyone who wasn't a virgin, and to capture all the virgins and give them to Benjamin, who at this point they had made peace with. Thus they did. Everyone at Jabesh Gilead who was not a virgin or was male was killed. The virgin women were taken off, 400 in all. This is not going to be enough. 400 is not going to satisfy the entirety of Benjamin because so many of the Benjaminite women had been killed after Israel defeated Benjamin in battle. Remember when they lit all those towns on fire? Yeah, they killed a lot of people in that situation. And the men of Israel still had compassion on Benjamin and were like, what can we do? Like, what on earth can we actually do to help out this tribe? Because we've been too hard on them. And also, like, we want to show them compassion. Now, personally, I don't think they went too hard on him, but this isn't a personally podcast. This is a storytelling podcast. They came up with a plan that will sound remarkably mythological, but is in fact, at least according to the Book of Judges, what actually happened. There was an annual festival at Shiloh for the Lord, and so Israel told the men of Benjamin specifically to lie in wait at the vineyards outside of Shiloh. The daughters of Shiloh, all the young virgin women in Israel who went to this giant festival, would go out and dance, and that they could take them just straight up kidnap them and bring them back to the area of Benjamin, to the land of Benjamin, and make them their wives. This way, no one is actually giving their daughters to Benjamin. Nobody's sure who's going to be taken. It's actual kidnapping. And then the elders were like, if any of their fathers or brothers comes to us, we'll beg them to let you keep them. Like, we'll handle it. And so Benjamin agrees to do this. They hide and wait in the vineyards. And when the daughters of Israel come out to dance, because it's a festival, to the Lord. They kidnap them and take them back to Benjamin, where they rebuild their towns and cities, which had been completely destroyed by Israel. Again, this whole thing is because some town city was misbehaving and did something terrible. Well, the men of Benjamin do exactly what they were told to do by Israel. They take the virgins from the dance party and bring them back to Benjamin and rebuild it. And at this point, the civil war is over. Everyone returns to their own home. There is still no king in Israel, and everyone is doing what they see fit, what they like. They're doing whatever they want and saying it's before the Lord, but not even arguably. It is not what God would be necessarily keen on. I want to end the book of Judges by reading the first stanza of the poem The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The book began with a prophetess who was singing songs before God, celebrating how the Lord carried them through. It ends with a woman cut into 12 pieces that sparks a civil war that leads to the death of probably hundreds of thousands of people and a mass kidnapping of the young virgin daughters of Israel, sanctioned by their own elders. Things fall apart. The next episode of Messy Scripture, thankfully, will be a little lighthearted. It's, like I said last time, one of the greatest love stories of all time. Although... It might not be quite what you expect. 
stay tuned because next week we're going to cover the entire book of Ruth.